we're seeing almost 70% of our customers either take 100 meg service or above. That's telling the story of what that real demand is out there. This is episode 240 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. It seems like every day we learn of yet another electric cooperative bringing high-quality connectivity to rural communities. In areas with low population density, national providers don't offer high-speed service, and electric cooperatives are already offering electric services, so providing fast, affordable internet access is often the next logical step. In this interview, Christopher talks with Darren Farnan, Chief Development Officer of United Electric Cooperative in Missouri. The cooperative is working on a fiber project, and in addition to talking about that, the guys discuss the logistics and financing of bringing fiber to very rural areas. Darren also gets into why it's so important and why cooperatives are picking up the slack where national providers won't serve. You'll hear Darren use the term ILEC. If you're not familiar with the term, it's an acronym for Incumbent Local Exchange Carrier. It's a telephone company that's already established and providing telephone service in a local area. Hey folks, this is Chris Mitchell, the host of Community Broadband Bits, and I just wanted to ask you if you could do us a real big favor to help us spread this show around, and that's to jump on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you found this show, and to give us a rating, give us a little review, um, particularly if you like it. If you don't like it so much, then, then maybe don't do that, um, but if, you, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a rating and help us to build the audience a bit. Thanks. Now here's Christopher and Darren Farnan, Chief Development Officer of United Electric Cooperative of Missouri. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Darren Farnan, the Chief Development Officer of United Electric Cooperative in Missouri. We're going to be talking about the United Fiber Project, a broadband expansion project uh, that United Electric Cooperative is in the middle of, or actually finishing up, really. Uh, so welcome to the show, Darren. Thanks for having me, Chris. One of the things that I find interesting working in this space is that people will assume, if I told them that we're talking about an area in, in, the, in one of the most rural area regions of Missouri, they would naturally assume there is not very good internet access there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the United Fiber Project and dispel that myth. At, at one time, uh, your thoughts are correct. And back in 2010, when we were originally looking at this project, uh, whether or not that as a co-op we would apply for Reinvestment Act funds. Um, as we did a survey of our membership, nearly 89%, almost 90% of our members uh, we found were either unserved or underserved with 5 meg broadband. So we knew, obviously, being from the area, we're ingrained in the communities, ingrained in the region, and knew that there was a severe lack of broadband. And But even the then when we saw those survey results, it really opened our eyes to just how big this problem was. That that was kind of the driving force behind it. And again, as you mentioned, we're such a rural area. We're in extreme northwest Missouri. We have the fortunate or unfortunate uh, case of being the, the lowest density co-op in the state of Missouri, averaging just around 2.4 meters per mile. So everything we do, that is a challenge for us. Well, that is a remarkably low density. For comparison's sake, I think a lot of people assume that the private sector really struggles and is not interested in doing fewer than 11 homes or as in electric parlance uh, meters per um, linear mile. So uh, that's pretty pretty low density. And you reach across uh, six counties, I think, right? That's absolutely right. With our With our fiber footprint, we do reach across those six counties. And uh, we, we were a little bit unique in that some of our area was also served by rural telephone co-ops. 
So those were areas that we could not apply for in the original grant process. Ah, okay. So um, we're going to get into some of those, uh, a sense of how many of your members uh, have access to the fiber and um, look forward to learning more about that. But I, I wanted to start off with a little bit of the philosophy and a little bit of the um, the anecdotes, I think, around this and, and get a sense of, you know, you had you said almost 90% of people didn't have access to uh, what would consider broadband at that time. Uh, why was it important for your electric co-op to solve that problem? Well, obviously, the one thing is, is um, with co-ops, I think really across the country, by being ingrained in those communities, we're always the part of the economic development process, I, I would say for the most part. And, and uh, I was involved with that process, uh, you know, here in our local community. And it just was the fact that we see population being uh, a real problem. Obviously, we're losing population in these rural counties. Uh, kids are moving off or that talent drain where they're educated here, uh, may go to university here, but then they're off to the Kansas cities or other areas, you know, for, for the jobs. And so we're, we always are looking at how can we revitalize these areas? Cause we see, you know, from the farm standpoint where the farms are getting larger, there's fewer family farms. Um, the, the small rural communities sometimes dry up and really trying to figure out the first thing in economic development you have to do is, is stop the bleeding, so to speak. Even before you start talking about drawing in new businesses or new people, how do you retain what you have? And, we felt like broadband was a, obviously a very critical piece to uh, to doing that and keeping people here in this region. And are you seeing fruits from that? I mean, you've had uh, in some of your areas, I'm presuming it's been multiple years of you having this high quality service. Are, are you getting the results that you were hoping for? Well, you know, we started the service back in the middle of 2013. And so what we have done as part of this process, not only build out our rural footprint, which is what we did to begin with, we've also served a lot of the adjoining communities. So a lot of small communities that have access to very low-grade DSL at best. Some have had cable services in the past, but those cable companies have pulled out. Um, so we went in and started serving those businesses especially, whether it be schools, clinics, mom-and-pop businesses, whatever that may be. And we felt like that that has been some of the most rewarding experiences out of this whole piece. Is, as a region, we're so interrelated, whether or not we serve them electrically or not. And most of these communities, we do not serve electrically. I always like to bring up one good example of a, it's a dairy. That, now, this one is on our line. They had really reinvented themselves. Small, it was a small family dairy that has grown into a, to a large operation by doing flavored milks. They deliver throughout the Kansas City area and have really created a really successful business. But when our services came out to them in the first part of our building phase, they were to the point they could hardly even do a credit card transaction in their, in their buildings. And they have lots of visitors every year. They have a visitor center that they bring uh, children's groups into and things like that to try all their flavored milks and tell their story. And so those are the type of stories that are really gratifying that those are the type of things that, uh, you know, story after story of, of companies or individuals that are now able to work from home or, or their, their business um, because everything's gone to cloud-based are now able to do their business in, in our area. So countless stories of, of how that's helped, I believe, in our region. Well, and I, I really like that story. I mean, in, in part because you're talking about a business that impacts uh, both the urban and rural areas. And I think it gets at one of the, the points that I always try to make when we're talking about rural broadband policy, which is that if you live in a major city, you will be better off if we make sure that everyone is well connected. Uh, it's not the case that somehow people in Kansas City would be better off if that dairy farm had poor connectivity, right? In fact, they're better off because of it, because we people who are innovative, the entrepreneurs, we want to make sure that they can succeed wherever they are. The largest community in our region 
is uh, St. Joseph, Missouri, which is about 75,000 uh, people. But we've gone in there even at the request of the major healthcare provider there. They wanted us to connect some buildings, but that provided such a great opportunity. We do have some, some nursing home facilities, some clinics, either on our line or in small communities where some of the broadband is challenged. And we look at it that, hey, you know, we're able to connect this major provider to all the other providers in the region, whether or not it may even be one of their affiliated clinics or one of their affiliated locations. And what does that do now for the potential of telehealth, you know, uh, whatever that may be as those services become available? Not only are we filling an immediate need, I think we're also putting a possibility in place that really allows for the growth of what broadband services can provide out to these rural markets. So let's talk a little bit about um, the number of people involved. How many households and uh, businesses are in your area, and how many of them are able to take service from you? Well, we um, our original footprint when we built our rural market was about 4,500 homes. And since then, we have, just over this last year, in 2016, we completed our first community build, which is a municipal that uh, is on the fringe of our area. When you mention municipal, you mean there's a municipal electric provider that then welcomed you Correct. in? Okay. And um, yep. that's, it's, it's always good to hear that because I know sometimes the different electric providers may not be super friendly across uh, their their boundaries. Um, but then you, that was a community that already had both DSL and cable or one or the other? Correct. And, and also looked at a community that was a non-competitive market as well. So we're just ending the completion of, of the competitive market for the municipal uh, electric uh, serve business or excuse me community that we had and then we're also um, in the middle of completing the small community that we looked at from a full fiber to the home residential build um, what we have seen is in the competitive market our take rates have been very strong and growing quickly um, the one interesting thing I'll say about the non-competitive market this small community that um, we went in there, there's about 400 homes in this little over 400 homes in this community and we went in on the first night went over to start getting signups and this was this summer at a community event thinking that you know we would start off with maybe 20 or 30 signups that night and and i know we we hit our our pre-registration mark that very evening we we had over 80 people sign up in one <laughs> evening uh for service because they're so desperate for some type of service that, that will allow them to do, net, do netflix and do all the other things that people want to do with a good broadband connection so I think we're seeing whether, depending on whether it's a competitive market or a very poorly served uncompetitive market, that that desire, that that need for better bandwidth is really driving, um, really driving that that take rate. And how does it work where you are uh, dealing with a cooperative telephone provider already in your territory? Uh, how do you work that out? Typically, what we have done is. Because we did not, again, because they faced the very same rural issues that we serve with the, with the low density, that because we were both uh, rural utility uh, borrowers, we did not, um, obviously we could not even request funds in those areas for, for the original Reinvestment Act. So while we have crossover in some fringe areas, we typically don't have a lot of crossover there, and, and they have typically done a better job of reinvesting in their markets than what the large ILACs have done. So we try to focus our efforts, what we can do on those markets that to me are, are the, the most poorly served and most challenged and really have the least hope of ever really getting good broadband service to the market. So obviously then there are people within your 
electric territory that um, do not have fiber service from you, but they may have service from one of those co-ops that you just mentioned. Are there any, is there anyone within your territory that uh, just doesn't have service today? There still are a few, and, and that's why we have, with the original footprint, because, again, we were a, a very small co-op, uh, we only have about 10,000 meters total, and because of our density, um, we looked at that primary area um, of the ILEC provider that, that provided in our region. Now, there still are a few pockets, what I would call ILEC customers or large ILEC customers that are also members, and we are trying to work through ways to get to those members as well. So we're always looking for opportunities, um, obviously, with the Connect America Fund, some of the things that are they're happening at, uh, with that, we're, we're staying on top of that situation and trying to get any funding help that we can get. Also, as we become more successful with what we've done in some of these communities, especially from a business standpoint, uh, which, is, which has been surprising, honestly, to us about how much demand there's been there from the, from the uh, business sector, it's really helping us as far as speed up our timeframes from what we originally thought on our income statements and that sort of thing. So we're really hoping to take that money and eventually reach those pockets. We tend to serve those now with wireless or with satellite services, but honestly, that's what we're trying to do is get as much fiber out there as we can. And as a as a co-op then, would, would you feel that your mission is ultimately to make sure that everyone has equitable service in the end? That is definitely our goal, is to make sure that everyone we can reach realistically without obviously without threatening the the financial stability of the co-op, that we're out there aggressively searching for ways to do that. The other thing we've found that I'll just add to that is the one thing that this has allowed us to do now with more fiber capacity, and we have have fiber to most of our substations and those areas now as well, it has allowed us to improve our wireless services. So in those areas, those pockets, we are trying to uh, continually reach those with wireless in the short term until we can get either additional funding or other ways to reach those those members. And let's talk about that wireless. Um, what? Uh, how long has that been going on? Honestly, we have been doing wireless services since, uh, gosh, in the early 2000s. That was when we, we uh, worked with a neighboring co-op. As a matter of fact, Randy Clint, I believe, who's been a, um, on your show before, was at a neighboring co-op, and, and we have worked together for a long time, and, and we piggybacked off of his wireless network to start extending wireless services to our members well before we even thought about fiber services or anything like that. So we have been working at that for, for a long time and continue to look for, for resources and access. It, does, it is a more challenging modeling of the fact that, that the, um, the equipment changes fairly regularly, but there have been real strides made in that market to where we're able to provide much better bandwidth, much better services to that end user uh, again, you still have some terrain issues uh, where we have rolling hills, trees, that sort of thing. It's hard to provide 100% coverage with wireless, but where we can, where we can fill that in, we feel like we're bringing those members uh, a much better service than what they would have, with it, again, with any low-grade DSL or satellite service. And what kind of capacity can you offer now? You're mentioning that it's it's better now that you can do some of the, the backhaul with the fiber. What kind of speeds can you offer to a, a person out there in those areas? We're seeing we can easily offer 10 meg services and often often up to 25 meg services, again, depending on the distance from the tower and, and that's or wherever that access point resides to that to that customer. But that's basically given us a, the potential to get a much better, a real broadband service to them, uh, whereas in the past that was usually a, a lower bandwidth service that while it would suffice for the needs, you know, as we've seen, the demand has grown so much that, that we are able to, at a, at a good price, and at a good service level, 
provide wireless service uh, again in the interim, at least to get these people on a, on a service that they can use. Right. And that's for, I mean, a lot of people in these kinds of areas, that's incredible because that's the difference between their children having uh, a good ability to learn in school, doing their homework and accessing educational materials. And then also if they want to sell their home, making sure that they can get a, a good value for it rather than having to price it way lower because no one wants to move into a home where they can't stream Netflix is what I hear from the local folks. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, it really becomes an issue of what a lot of it is, is capacity. And that's what, you know, we tend to focus on speed and things like that so much. But what we find is that, that some of our folks on satellite, um, the speeds are, are fine. That's not the problem, but latency and then capacity. And if you go to stream Netflix or if, if the kids are downloading a lot of material, uh, looking through YouTube or whatever it may be, is, you know, you just hit those, those bandwidth constraints. And at least with our wireless service, that's something that, especially when they're fiber fed, when we have that fiber backbone to feed those wireless services, that really opens up the potential for us to not worry about usage caps and those sorts of things that, that they might experience on a on a satellite service. That's why we see those as being so restrictive. I sometimes compare that to, a, you know, they set you in that in that pretty red sports car, and but you can only drive it about 40 miles an hour. So it's one of those things that we really look at the wireless as kind of an extension of the fiber service to reach out in areas that are, you know, maybe unattainable to us right now from a financial standpoint, that, but that we hope we can push out into further and further with fiber as time progresses. Well, and I want to note that you you mentioned, you know, a wireless person might be expecting a 10 to 25 megabit service on those, um, the new fixed wireless that you're contemplating, but you're pushing a gig to people that have fiber to the home and at a very reasonable cost, a hundred bucks a month is what I'm seeing on your website. That's right. The one thing we're seeing in, in usage trends and things like that as well, or, or what I should say is, is customer preference. When we first started this business, and I think you'll see there that our minimum package on fiber is 25 meg. And what we saw originally was that over 50% of our customers were taking taking that base service because it was such an obviously such an advancement from what they'd had before. And as time progresses and as we keep moving forward, we've seen a real change in that. And now that we're seeing almost 70% of our customers either take 100 meg service or above. Wow. And I think that's telling the story of of what that real demand is out there. And we and one other thing I'll add to that is a managed wireless service. I think, obviously, we, we feel like this doesn't end at making the fiber connection to the side of the house. This really ends at the ends at the antenna inside the house. We look to provide a managed service we call Unify, and, and since the first of the year as well, we've been tracking this. And I, when I say the first of the year, I'm talking about 2016, that nearly 70% of our customers have taken this managed wireless service. Even though they may have a router in their house, they want that service in the house to be as high level as possible. And that means to reach... The, you know, the kid's bedroom, the, the, the basement area, wherever that may be, they want ubiquitous service throughout the house and that they don't experience speed drops or service drops. And so we're really trying to make that a, a priority is to make sure we manage that experience inside the house, not just getting fiber to the outside of the house. Well, and I think one of the one of the reasons you probably have such a higher uptake is that your pricing is is totally reasonable. Um, you know, it's uh, it's fifty bucks a month for the hundred meg service, and um, and you know, here's one of the questions I always have: is do you foresee having to raise the cost of these tiers over time, or is technological change driving the cost down and allowing you to basically expect to keep that price steady over time? You know, we're really, our goal is to keep that price steady. And I think obviously when you're in a small rural market like what we are, we found that, and as I know others have, some other co-ops that have looked at this business, 
um, sometimes getting that backhaul is difficult into your into your head end and getting it at a price that that uh, can make these type of services available at a at an effective rate like we believe we provide. We've seen that continually come down. We talk about the value of the network, and I think the more you expand, the more that network's out there, the more opportunities arise. And we found as we've got into some of these other communities, we've been able to make interconnections with other folks, with other uh, providers that are allowing us to keep our, you know, actually drive down our wholesale cost, even though the demand from the customer side is going up. So we believe that we can hold the line on our on our data prices into the future. That's what I would. That's what I like to hear. Although I know that um, myself as a Comcast subscriber, I'll be paying more every year or two because they know that I'm not going anywhere else. <laughs> right. I, so I, I would like to talk a little bit about the the cost of building such a great network out across such a, a rural area. Uh, do you have a sense of the um, sort of your cost per average house? Because we've done such a mix now of rural and residential. Obviously, we're our rural market was like I said toward the upper end of when we originally looked at the uh, application for through RUS was toward that five thousand dollar threshold per home, which is obviously on the high end. And that has drastically come down as we've gone into some communities, obviously, where we've, where we've picked up both business and residential to help drive that average cost down. You, you know, cost is always an issue. These are expensive networks to build. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But we've made that investment. Our uh, outlook from a Comcast or our outlook from a CenturyLink is totally different. We, we're investing in the region. We're, we're used to long-term investments. So for us, honestly, fiber service uh, compared to our electric service is a very solid investment. We believe even though we don't need three and five year paybacks like most of the um, most of the competitive carriers do, uh, we still have to have a payback at the end of the day. But I think we're able to do things. We're able to invest differently. Uh, we're able to invest long term. Um, we're able to just because we're the only provider in the area does not mean we're going to raise a price because we can. We're looking to make our region as competitive as possible, and that's the real difference, I think, between what a co-op provides and, and what a competitive carrier provides. To some extent, I wonder if when you look at this, um, doesn't the investment in fiber in improving the economic viability of the region, improving the quality of life, doesn't that really make your electrical future more safe? I mean, I would think that you have long-term power purchase agreements, and and the more you can do to make sure that people are going to want to live in your area, that's that's just better for your other line of business. Absolutely, and it and it's about the region. You know, we've invested even in areas again where we don't provide electric service, but we know that that if you don't have those small communities, where do those people go? They're they're not staying in the area potentially. You know, we feel it's just as critical to bring these small communities up to speed as it is our rural members. And I think, again, that's the approach. It's a, it's a regional approach. It's a regional focus rather than just looking at what benefits us as a, as a company the most. But absolutely, that is why we're investing in the region is to try to try to revitalize, try to keep those folks where they are, give them the tools to do either the type of business uh, telecommute, whatever that may be that they're wanting to do, give them the tools they need to to live their life. As, and you mentioned quality of life, and that's really a part of our mission statement is to improve the quality of life of the members we serve. And, and that's exactly what we feel like these type of projects do. 
And talking about the Connect America Fund, I, I'm curious, and you know, some of the conversations I've had with uh, with John Chambers and Randy Clint and, and folks that are working with electric utilities is that y'all can be much more efficient, and you you seem to be able to extend fiber extend fiber at a lower cost than what particularly the big companies are are doing. I mean, you look at you look at um, CenturyLink to pick on one, and just looking at them recently in, in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and it seems like, you know, if if we gave you the money that they're getting in some of these areas where they're just doing DSL, I get the sense that you could probably do fiber over a long period. Am I overstating that? Not not at all. As a matter of fact, I think that is probably one of the most frustrating pieces. As the more we've gotten to know about how uh, rural broadband is being funded, um, it is frustrating because these typically what is happening is that these things are uh, being funded to some of the larger ILEX and it seems like they're just meeting that next threshold of of broadband whatever that means obviously we know now that the the FCC defines that as as 25 meg down and 3 up just a few years ago when we were looking at the beginning of our project that was defined as 4 down and 1 up if if we keep putting a patchwork quilt out there so to speak to try to keep up with broadband service by using outdated copper whenever we could run fiber at, at a one-time expense, often cheaper than what the incumbent can, there, there's a problem there that it's not being done, and that's what we're trying to rectify. There's about 900 co-ops in the country, rural electric co-ops nationwide, and they cover about 70% of, of the land mass of the United States. And there's already existing infrastructure there. While, while there is make-ready costs, there's things that you have to do to your existing plant, you're, you're talking often, at the very least, half the cost of running underground service often closer to a third of the price of, of underground service from what we've seen on our own numbers. And again, that can vary slightly, you know, depending on the quality of your infrastructure and the things that each individual co-op would have to do. But but for the most part, yes, that, that cost is extremely lower um, than, than what a, a large ILEC carrier or another carrier that is putting in all underground services would have to provide. So, you know, people say, well, it's, a, it's an overhead service. Well, absolutely. And and uh, that same overhead service has provided electric service to rural America for the last 75 years. Businesses, whatever it may be, our people are used to keeping the lights on. And, and I think the, the very same motto, the same ethos would apply to, to broadband service as well. And so I think for my, my last question, there's so much more I'd like to ask you, but, um, you know, since you do both electricity and fiber, um, people talk as though fiber is the most expensive thing in the world. Can you give us a sense of how it compares to, um, you know, building and operating electrical networks? It's honestly, it's become a fraction of the cost of what we would see on a new mile of electrical construction. And the other thing we tend to find is that we're running fiber on existing infrastructure already. So we're not necessarily putting up new poles. Uh, we'll run a new carrier wire, but for the most part, we're not adding large structure. We're adding basically uh, a carrier, a messenger, and a um, and a piece of fiber. And typically the fiber itself by the foot is is relatively inexpensive. The network itself, the the labor, those are the things that, you know, where you add your cost. But for the most part, again, we're talking a fraction of the cost of what it would cost to build a new mile of, of existing plants. So, so for these co-ops that are looking at, you know, providing this over their existing infrastructure, it's a much different economic outlook than what it would be to go out and build all new plant for a provider that's, that's just looking to go into a new area. One of the things that, that I just want to quick get a quick take from you on is there's a sense from some people that we shouldn't even try to bring fiber out to everyone. And, 
you know, when I talk to folks like you, where you're doing this at, you know, like less than two and a half people per mile, um, I got to think we can actually get high quality networks out to everyone in this country if we put our minds to it and at a reasonable cost, too. Am I crazy? No, absolutely. I think that's I think we're proving it. Uh, Como's proved it. There's been others building these networks uh, throughout the country. It's this is not a phenomenon to Missouri. This is not a phenomenon to another state. This is really just about a local business uh, taking initiative into their own hands and uh, and building a service that that their membership or their communities need. Um, we we don't feel like we necessarily recreated the wheel here. There's there's models out there. It can be done. Um, again, if for for a co-op that's as rural as us, if if CAF funding or other services that are being spent already, when those dollars are being spent uh, to provide, again, a low-grade 10-meg service, um, we feel like that money could be much better used investing a one-time shot into fiber. And now the, the possibilities are virtually endless on what you can do. As you said, we're providing gigabit service in extremely rural America for $100 a month. We're providing 100-meg service for $50 a month. If we can do that here, I think it can be done all across the country and be replicated. So I, I'm a firm believer that you're absolutely right. This this can be done uh, through our type of initiatives and can be replicated throughout the country. And to be perfectly clear, you have no operating subsidies. You operate this network entirely on your own without any outside money, without any, um, without any subsidies from the electrical side. Uh, there are some capital one-time subsidies to build the infrastructure, but then you can run this constantly just on the revenues it generates. Absolutely. And that's exactly how we have to look at it. We, we, uh, like you said, we've had capital infusion from the electric side to help generate this, to help start this business. But this business is now standing on its own. And, and uh, we've actually become profitable in less time than what we had even expected on our original balance sheets. Again, that's not necessarily the driving force to what we're doing. We're out there trying to get a service out with a long-term approach. But we've found it's even surprised us on with the demand we've had from both the residential and commercial side, how much opportunity has come to us just by having this network in place. And we are constantly getting more requests to build further and further and further. So the, the demand is there. We've, you know, the, us with others have shown that the model can be successful. So again, I, I believe it can absolutely be done. I think it needs to be done, or if not, rural America is going to get left behind. We're already seeing, and, and the numbers are there, the FCC still says that nearly 40% of rural America does not have access to, to 25 meg broadband, whereas about 4% of urban America does. So that number has, has been pretty constant for the last two to three years. So what little we're doing here to try to help that in our, in our region, in our area, I think if we could get a groundswell to keep pushing that forward uh, with the other cooperatives throughout the country, I think, I think we can really start making a dent in, in the needs for rural America. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show to, to tell us some more about the United Fiber approach. You bet, Chris. I appreciate your time. That was Christopher and Darren Farnan, Chief Development Officer of United Electric Cooperative of Missouri. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Send us your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and all of the podcasts in the ILSR family on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Never miss out on our original research. Subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. 
Thanks to Admiral Bob for the song Turbo Tornado licensed through Creative Commons. And thanks for listening to episode 240 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thank you.